welcome to episode 97 of the Conversations with Ross podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Stephanie Beatriz. Stephanie is an actress who plays Detective Rosa Diaz on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You can catch Brooklyn Nine-Nine Tuesday nights at 8.30 on Fox. Stephanie, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Well, Stephanie, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to acting in the first place. Well, it's sort of a little bit of a sad story. Um, I went to public school growing up, and there were three electives that we were allowed to take, um, band, choir, or um, I think they called it debate at the time. Um, And I signed up for choir, but the choir teacher on the first day told me that I didn't really have a voice, so I should think about doing something else. (laughs) Off to a good start. Yeah, that was was a wonderful moment. That was a really precious moment in my childhood. So I switched to uh, debate, and here we are. So how did debate take you to acting? Debate was, I think, like sixth graders were allowed to debate, and then when you're in seventh and eighth grade, you could do um, the theater, like the drama class. And so um, I think it was eighth grade I was in my first, like, official play, and I wanted to be the female lead in the play like everybody does and instead I got cast as like the male villain like the twisty mustache villain (laughs) and the next day at school I'll never forget it um Willie Rivera who was like very popular played football and stuff he talked to me for the first time in science class and was like hey uh your brother was really good on that that play yesterday and I just sort of sat there and took the compliment even though I don't have a brother and he confused me for an actual man I didn't care (laughs) You were happy about the I attention. Took it. Yeah. I was. I was I was like happy and also like really proud of myself that I had somehow convinced this guy that, you know, had taken class with me every single day in eighth grade that like that I was somebody of a completely different gender, you know. I was kind of like amazed that he was convinced by it. So that's sort of when it like it really kicked in that I that I thought like I really like this. I'm good at this thing. I I want to do this. Yeah. Now, do you come from a theatrical background? Were your parents involved with acting or in show business at all? What did no, your parents do for a living? No, not at all. My my uh, my dad was um, he was a uh, chemical engineer in South America. When they moved to the United States, uh, opportunities didn't match up with his education. So he's actually um, a school bus driver now, and my mom is a teacher. She teaches Spanish. Um, but neither one of them had entertainment in their backgrounds, but they were very, very supportive of they're artistic kids. My, myself and my sister are both artists. So acting obviously started out as a recreation. It does that way for most people. Uh, you're yeah. in middle school. You start acting. You like it. How does it go from a recreation to something you actually think you can pursue as a career? I think I sort of had blinders on. I think I just made a decision at some point, maybe like around ninth or 10th grade, that that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know how it was going to happen. I didn't know anyone in the business. I didn't really know how it was going to work out. I just sort of knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, And then as high school progressed, I had some really great teachers that sort of introduced me to, like, there are colleges where you can get a degree, and through those colleges you can, you know, meet alums and branch out, and, you know, there are theaters all around the country that you can work at. So it, it was really, like, the people that I knew in the beginning that knew anything about entertainment were teachers and they just sort of like shepherded me along till college and that's when I sort of started really figuring out okay like this is what you're gonna have to do to be a regional theater actress. So what were your initial expectations of yourself and of your career when you first moved to LA? LA was 
was an interesting move because I had been doing theater for a while since I graduated um, college. So, but I wanted to, um, you know, you can make, you can really make a great living doing regional theater, but you're traveling all the time and you definitely can't make TV money. So I really, uh, I wanted to try my hand at it just to see if I could, you know, make anything happen. I don't think I had many expectations other than this might take a while and I'm going to need to work really hard. Did you move out there already having an agent or was that something you had to get as well? I did. I did have an agent. Um, I was lucky enough to do a play here in 2009 called Lydia um, that this amazing playwright Octavio Solis wrote. And um, when I did that play, uh, my current agent saw it. It was at the Mark Taper Forum and he saw it and immediately they brought me in for a meeting and signed me after that. So they've been with me for a long time. They're very, very supportive and awesome. What were some of the early obstacles that you encountered that you didn't necessarily anticipate when you first moved? One of the biggest obstacles was time management. Like, it's very, it's so uh, spread out, and the auditions are everywhere. And I just had learned to drive when I moved here because I lived in New York beforehand, so I didn't need a car at all. So that was a massive change. Like, because in New York, you can just sort of, you figure out where you're going, you figure out what train stops you need, and then, like, you just sit on the train and, like, read your lines or read a book or whatever. Here, you're involved in the traffic. Like, you got to get in your car and then, like, navigate all the, you know, excuse me, but, like, there's some idiots on the road. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, there's <laughs> some serious, idiotic driving. And so, like, that was a major challenge. And then also, like, in New York, you can basically plan, like, oh, you can get anywhere in, like, an hour. Not so here. Like, even if you live pretty close to it, you'd be surprised how long things take you if there's not, like, a freeway you can jump on or, you know. And even then, it's I mean, some of it's just, like, horrible. There's so many people here, you know, that – and everyone's got a car, so that's a massive challenge at first. So many of the For actresses sure. have, who have come on have talked about that element of the driving combined with pilot season, and they're often just in traffic in their cars doing outfit changes because it's the only way they have time to go from one audition to the next. They just have to use that oh, time yeah. somehow. Yeah, yeah. Outfit. The only time I've ever done an outfit change was I had an audition for um, George C. Wolf, and I was flipping out because, you know, he's – because he's got a great theater reputation as well as like film, but I was late. I was late to the audition. And so I was changing in the car during traffic, which is not, I do not recommend that. It's highly dangerous. Before we get into your part on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, tell me about your film Short Term 12 and how that part came to be for you. Oh, that is such a special film. Um, that happened because one of my agents read this script and passed it along and said, do you want to go in on an audition for this? It's going to be, you know, low pay. And I think it was like, I don't know, some, you know, very, very indie pay film. Um, and it's, it's, you know, not that big of a part. Are you interested? And I read the script and was like, are you kidding? This is amazing. Of course I want to go in for this. I hope to God that I get it. You know, it's such a beautiful film. It's, Dustin Cretton, the writer-director, did just a fantastic job um, of bringing that world to life. He he actually worked in a group home for kids for quite a few years um, in his earlier days. And I just think that his experiences there and getting to know the kids there really brought a really important, beautiful story to life. The film gained a lot of momentum through the festival circuit. Did you go to any of the festivals? 
I wasn't able to go. Unfortunately, they were sort of uh, winding up as we began filming Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So I, I wanted to be there so badly, but it was like Sophie's choice. <laughs> I imagine that's a, a neat experience as an actress, never mind missing the festivals. That's obviously not so neat. But the part of yeah. you do an independent movie and look, so many independent movies are made. You never have any idea if it will get picked up, if it will get distributed, if anything will come of it. And all of a sudden it gets picked up, it's in festivals, and it's making a name for itself. That's got to be a good feeling. It is a good feeling. And oddly, not I was not that surprised with that one because, I don't know, sometimes I guess – I mean, I haven't done, again, I haven't done any film and television, really, but definitely, like, I've had the experience of being part of an ensemble in something where you know it's so good, you know, like, you feel some kind of light coming from the inside of it, and you just know that it's going to be received well, and I knew that about that movie. Have you ever felt the opposite? Have you ever been on a cat set and been like... you feel like it's a piece of shit? Yes, Totally. Um, I, I actually had a discussion with this uh, about this with my um, one of my very close friends, and uh, and he was like, "You you've never been in a piece of crap." I was like, "No, I never have. I've been very lucky in, the, in in my theater life. I've been really lucky that I've never done anything that I wasn't 100% like behind and into." Tell me, let's switch over to Brooklyn Nine Nine. Tell me about this part and how it came to be for you. The interesting thing about this role, um, well, first of all. There was no script that I got in the beginning. My agent said, the guys that write Parks and Rec um, are having auditions for their new series. And I was like, what? Are you kidding? Oh, my God. Will they see me? Um, and uh, I saw, I think I saw like one one scene because I hadn't written the entire pilot yet. I went in an audition for that scene. And then um, I got a call back for, but for a different role that they were trying to write. And the character's name was Megan in the initial seamless. And something about the way that she was sort of like super balls to the wall, like very brash and straight really appealed to me. Um, so I read for that and I got called back for it and I screen tested for it and then I got it and I sort of felt like I, it was weird. It was like, what is this really happening? Is this a joke? (laughs) Did I really, really like, Really, I'm going to go screen. Like when I got the call for the screen test, they were like, you're going to screen test. And so already when you hear those words as an actor, you're like, holy crap. You know, your heart starts beating, your palms start sweating. And then the next sentence is, and you're going to be doing some improv with Andy at the, at the <laughs> screen test. And I was like, oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> Which actually turned out to be the best part of it. It was way fun to sort of sit next to him and play a little bit. That was the most relaxed that I felt in the audition. Was that your first time you had tested? No, it was not. I did a pilot last year as well um, that didn't go. Um, and I actually tested for, uh, I think, another another series this spring as well. can't remember the name of it. So you, you tested essentially for two shows that were both could have debuted this year. How does that work if you get both? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I, I think you have to sign some stuff to one, like... One of them gets your gets you as a first choice, I think. I don't know. Good question. So Michael Shore, Parks and Rec, is uh, one of the co-creators of the show. Uh, you mentioned being a fan of Parks and Rec. What does he initially tell you about your character? And how do you – you said that you sort of went in just seeing like one scene. How much do you feel like the character has evolved since that first scene? She's evolved a little. Uh, but, but I think that – I don't know. I think Mike and Dan had a really – like – 
they sort of set it up great. There was a there was a scene that was cut from all things um, that I think I can share. It was like a little flashback scene where Rosa is opening a present. It's like her birthday. She's opening a present. She pulls out a sweater. And it says in the stage directions that she's wearing a sweater almost exactly like the one she's holding up. And she just goes off on everyone. She's like, who, why did you think I would ever wear this piece of crap? You know what? I'm done. And she throws the sweater down and like walks out. And that's the entire flashback. And I mean, that's her in a nutshell, right? Like she's so un, you think you maybe know who she is or like maybe you've got a handle on her. And then she just like flips it right on its head and just like does something, some sort of oddly surprising um she's evolved a little in that like we get we're getting to see her backstory a little bit more in the episodes that we've been filming lately um i think they had a pretty clear sort of vision of what she was i mean i think i think i know when the writing is clear when i know what i should wear to the audition like when i know what i should go in looking like that tells me that the writing is pretty clear because that's such a big it's usually such a hard thing to figure out. And that I remember that audition. I was like, oh, okay, tight black pants and a leather jacket. Got it. <laughs> and that's what she wears on the show. Yeah, that's what she wears on the show, yeah. Tell me about Andre Brower and how he approaches his scene work. He is very calm and relaxed, and he's very sweet and funny. Uh, he's not intimidating at all. I noticed that he writes his name on the top of his sides every day. Okay. And he highlights. <laughs> <laughs> so he's very, like... Um, he he's definitely by the numbers. I see that he like he memorizes lines probably very similar to the way I do, which is like you just want to get it, you want to have it before you step on set. So you're like you know working on it all the time. Um, but he's great. He's very uh, I don't know. He's he's a really fun guy. He's not intimidating. He's not standoffish. He's like fun and silly and sweet and kind of hilarious and. He makes dirty jokes sometimes, not like uncomfortable ones, but he's hilarious. He's great. I want to mix it up a little bit, Stephanie. Tell me about your worst audition experience. Oh, God. It was for, um, <laughs> I have two. Uh, my first audition ever in New York uh, was for a musical or something. And so in New York, you go to these, when when you're not um, a union member yet, you go to these giant cattle calls. They're usually in like Ripley Greer Studios or Chelsea Studios and there's like tons of girls just lined. Everyone's lined up with their little picture and resume. And at musical auditions, you also bring like your your dance clothes just in case you get the dance call back. Anyway, so I'm sitting in this giant room with tons of other women, and I'm so nervous. And and the girl next to me <clears throat> says, "Oh, what are you singing?" And I think, "Oh, I'm, I have this is great conversation, you know, because I'd been in New York for like three weeks or something." And so I turn around and I tell her what song I'm singing. I don't even remember the song. I say, oh, I'm singing blah. And she goes, oh, that's brave. <laughs> that was it. I mean, I was, it was a horrible audition. It was horrible. And I don't think I ever sang that song again. Obviously, I've just struck it from my memory because I can't even remember what it is. So that was number one, lesson learned. Do not chat at auditions. Focus on the task at hand. And then the next one was one here, actually, where, and I won't say the company name, but it was for a children's television channel and it just was like it i get it because they they work with kids and sometimes kids need to really be told like look over here and then smile on this line you know but in that audition i just was sort of i felt frozen because i felt like oh you don't think i know how to do this thing that i i actually know how to do this i 
I can craft this stuff. I can I can actually pick up texts that are like 400 years old and figure out what they mean and then say them to an audience and make them understand. But you don't you don't trust that I can do that, you know. So it was very it was a strange experience because it, I just I sort of felt like I was in a haze the whole time as I was being like sort of shoved around and told when to do what and how to say it. And I was like, and then I didn't get it, which was great, which was a blessing, but it was very surreal. It's being micromanaged. I remember getting in my car yeah. after that. What? What's that? It's like being micromanaged in an audition is not what you're looking for at all. You know, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think any anybody that's creative wants to be micromanaged. Of course we want input and we want to know how to make what we're doing better, but there's there's a difference between that and, you know, being a puppet, you know, if you want to, if you want to put on a puppet show, you should totally get some puppets. Do you feel like we talked a little bit earlier about knowing when a film will be good? Do you feel like right when you walk into an audition, do you know if it's going to be a good one or a bad one? You know, I think it depends. It's a, on a lot of variables. I mean, it depends on how you feel about yourself and how you feel about what you what you're bringing to the table, like what you're bringing in with you. Like, um, are you ready? Are do you feel connected? Do you think that you'd be uh, are you confident that you would be kick-ass if you got cast in it? So all those things are in your control. What's not in your control is the people in the room. They might not like you. You might remind them of someone they hate. You. They might already want to give the part to someone else, and they're having to hold auditions because the producers want to see more people. So, like, sometimes you'll feel great and then hit the room and know – like feel that it's just they're not into you but you know there's nothing you can do about it you can't you can't really change like them in the moment you can just kind of come in and do a good job do you look you feel like you're on the verge here like this year has been a very big year for you you become a series regular on a brand new show on fox with some very established actors you have a movie coming out in short term 12 that's getting uh, critically acclaimed all of a sudden here do you feel like you're on the verge of stardom you know stacy keach um is I'm sure I'm not supposed to say this is going to be uh, guest starring in one of the episodes coming up, and he's an actor that's very respected and and he's done some amazing work in his time. Um, and I think if I could have a career that allows me to work until I'm his age, he, I mean he played Henry V at at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in 1963, and now he's here on the set. Like you know, I mean, so I don't I don't know if I don't know what's going to happen. But I do know that I want to work until I drop dead. There's this great Dolly Parton quote where she talks about, I love what I do. I do what I love. I, I'm not, I'm totally paraphrasing it. But there's this part where she says, I hope I'm doing it until the day I die. I hope I die right in the middle of a song or on stage doing what I love to do. And that's what I hope for myself. I hope that I just keep working until I can't work anymore, you know. And if this if this is part of it, this is part of it, which is incredible, and I'll never, ever forget it. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm doing my best job every day, so I hope that counts for something. You wanted to be a working actress pretty much your whole life since you were a kid. Is being a working yeah. actress what you expected it to be? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty magical. It's like, it's just as creative as I thought it would be. It's just as fun. It's just as challenging. It's just as, like... Um, there's there's like whoa moments like all the time you know watching somebody else figure something out or um you know like watching for example Andy like his brain works so fast like and watching that is really inspiring because you you're yeah, I'm sitting next to him and he's like he's he's figuring out this like creative puzzle like that is so exciting you know watching people in rehearsal or watching people 
while filming and and watching those sort of like little brains like make it work you know it's like really it's cool that's my favorite part i think is watching the other actors around me and trying to figure out how they did that or why they're doing it or whether or not i can sort of apply what they're doing to my own work you know that i think that that part of it was the most I think in the first rehearsal I ever had in a professional show, I, I stuck around after my scenes and like watched the other actors because I just didn't want to leave. I just didn't want to leave the rehearsal hall. Yeah. So. What advice would you give to young actors or actresses who are trying to break in? I would say number one, work really hard. Work harder than everybody else because there's a lot of talented people, but there's not a lot of hard workers. I think, um, a lot of people scrape by, especially like in high school and college in the beginning when you're young and lovely, you can scrape by on just like your sort of instincts. But if you combine what you already know you have, your instincts with a lot of hard work, meaning like you do everything in your power to make sure that you're ready for an audition or for a part or, you know, anything that you're doing, meaning like you study, meaning you don't stay out late and party, meaning you take care of your instrument like it's the most precious thing in the world. You know, I think that that... I think somebody told me that a long, long time ago. One of my teachers told me that, and it's been very good advice. You've been listening to Stephanie Beatrice. You can catch her on Brooklyn Nine-Nine Tuesday nights at 8.30 on Fox and give her a follow on Twitter at I am Steph Beats. That's B-E-A-T-Z. Stephanie, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.